Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our conversations rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the errors people make in their reasoning and how to correct them. We explain a number of statistical principles to help you sharpen your thinking and make you a better decision maker. We look at why every $1 spent on a scared straight program creates $400 in additional costs of the criminal justice system. We talk about the illusion of objectivity and why you should not rely on your intuition and much more with Dr. Richard Nisbet. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 675,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. A lot of our listeners are curious how I organize and remember all this information. I get tons of emails and comments asking me how to keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to a ton of podcasts, and much more. Because of that, we've created an amazing free resource for you. You can get it completely free by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. It's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. Listeners are loving it. We get emails all the time about people telling us how this has changed their lives, how this has helped them stay more organized and keep track of all of the stuff that they're learning. Again, you can get it completely free by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and putting in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed the radical mismatch between your intuitive sense of risk and the actual risks you face. We looked at why most experts and forecasters are less accurate than dart-throwing monkeys. We talked about how to simply and easily dramatically reduce your risk for the most 
major dangers in your life. We explored the results from the Good Judgment Project, which is a study of more than 20,000 forecasts. And we talked about super forecasters, what they are and how they beat prediction markets, intelligence analysts that had classified information and software algorithms to make the best possible forecasts and much more with Dan Gardner. If you're thinking about planning for next year and you want to be able to predict the future better, listen to that episode. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show. Richard Nisbet. Richard is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. He's been awarded the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award of the American Psychology Association, the William James Fellow Award for Distinguished Scientific Achievements, and the Donald T. Campbell Award for Distinguished Research in Social Psychology, among others. He's the author of the recent book, Mindware, as well as The Geography of Thought, Think Differently, and Intelligence and How to Get It. Richard, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So for listeners who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, the thrust of my career has been studying reasoning. And fairly early on, I got interested in studying the errors that people make in reasoning. And after I'd been doing that for a while, I began to think, well, can I correct these errors? And at the time, we're talking now about the 70s, early 80s, psychologists were quite convinced that There really wasn't much you could do to change the way people think. Reasoning is done at a very concrete level. You can't just insert abstract rules and expect that to affect reasoning. So I I bought that, and I don't know exactly why I decided to test it anyway, (laughs) but I did. I started to see if I could make people be more rational, make better judgments and decisions by teaching them rules like the law of large numbers, the concept of regression how to think probabilistically, microeconomic concepts like uh, cost-benefit analysis and so on. And I found, first of all, people do learn in college, and this was counter to prevailing theory, they do learn some general rules that do improve the way they think, although it's very spotty. Different majors are learning different things. So then I decided to see whether I could myself teach them these rules in a brief period of time. And what I found was that I can teach these kinds of rules in 15 to 20 minutes, and they stick with people at least for a few months after that. I know it because I call them in the guise of a survey researcher asking them their opinions about various things. And I know if they use the rule that they should, then that'll come out in the answer. And sure enough, people do to a very significant extent retain those kinds of rules. And so that gave rise to the book uh, that I wrote, which you know, is brief, breezy descriptions of rules and concrete problems that they can be applied to. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about Mindware. Tell me what inspired you to write the book. Well, it was this discovery that people are learning something about probabilistic concepts, statistical concepts, experimental methodology concepts microeconomic concepts, some philosophy of science concepts, logic, etc. They're getting some of that in school. They're not getting nearly as nearly as much as they could easily if professors just spent a little more time. I mean, my joke about statistics courses is that they're taught so as to prevent, if at all possible, the escape of statistical concepts into everyday life. If They just gave a few professors of statistics, just gave a few concrete examples. I now know that would make a huge difference. And they probably would say, 
oh no, you know, I mean, with this, we don't have that kind of time. I, with this material has to be gotten through. I'm, that's not the way to think about it because the concrete examples from everyday life actually feed back into an abstract understanding of the principles. So they actually could get their teaching done quicker if they gave more ordinary examples. So my book is trying to do that. Say what your statistics teacher didn't do for you. And if you haven't had statistics, here are some very powerful concepts that will save you a lot of grief in life. I'm curious, are you familiar at all with Charlie Munger and his concept of the idea of mental models and sort of the the notion of arraying mental models on a lattice work of understanding in terms of kind of building a much richer tool set to understand reality? I'm not. That sounds like something I should know about. Definitely recommend checking him out uh, after the show. I'll shoot you a few links. He's amazing. And we'll throw some things in the show notes as well. But he is one of my favorite thinkers about kind of a very similar concept, which he, he calls mental models, which is basically the idea of in order to accurately understand reality, we have to master the fundamental principles of all the major disciplines that govern reality, everything from physical sciences to statistics, mathematics, economics, especially psychology, and kind of build a robust framework that incorporates all of those into truly understanding reality. That sounds like a great idea. And it sounds like in many ways, that's kind of the same path that you embarked down in terms of taking a lot of these concepts that get easily misunderstood and making them so that people can really grasp them in a simple and understandable way. Exactly. So I'm curious, you know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about in the past is how both the sort of industrial revolution and then the kind of information revolution changed the way that we need to think. I'd love to hear you kind of explain that concept. I'd be delighted. I'd say 15 or 20 years ago, there was a book written by Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein, very famous at the time, called The Bell Curve. It's all about intelligence. I mean, which basically says, you know, intelligence is basically fixed at birth. I mean, it's primarily a heritable thing. There's not much you can do in the way of the environment to improve intelligence or IQ. And, oh, and incidentally, some ethnic groups have lower IQs for genetic reasons than others. And every single thing I just said is wrong. <laughs> and a book I wrote called Intelligence and How to Get It shows how wrong all of that is. But, and I would also say that intelligence is broader than what you test on IQ tests. But I began to be aware of in doing studies historically or studies with people who've had no formal education, no experience with the modern world, is that the Industrial Revolution absolutely changed the way people think. I mean, profoundly. Prior to the late 18th century, the late 18th century, people were not really capable of thinking in abstractions. They were not capable of applying logical rules to thought. They were not capable of counterfactual reasoning. Uh, the, the, this is not the way the world is, we both know, but suppose the world were that way, what would be what would follow from that? that? That was impossible for them, we know, because we know people with so little education today are unable to do those things. So the Industrial Revolution, it taught people reading the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then for free, we got all of these abstract reasoning skills. And we continue to improve in those kinds of skills. Over the last 70 years, IQ has increased by more than a standard deviation. That's 
like approximately from 100, when the average was 170 years ago, the average on that same test would turn out to be 115, 16, 18 today. And that's the difference between somebody that we would expect to graduate high school and maybe have a year or two of junior college versus someone we would expect to surely finish a four-year college and possibly go on to postdoctoral work. That's the kind of difference that, that we get as a, as a function of additional cultural changes, improvements in education, and so on. And even a lot of activities that, that are just, <laughs> they're not undertaken for instructional reasons, but for fun. I mean, you know, I Love Lucy was a great TV show, but it didn't place many demands on your intellect. But I watch TV shows now and I, I, I can't keep up with them. I mean, I, who is that guy? What is he trying to achieve? Or, you know, things, that kind of inter- entertainment is much more sophisticated today. And of course, we have computer games. Also, we know that some of those are improving intellectual skills. So, okay, so that's that's the the history of IQ and some kinds of intelligence that are related to IQ, but we live in a new era, the information age, and the IQ skills are still highly relevant, but there are a lot of skills that you that are not represented on IQ tests at all that you have to have in the new age to be smart enough to function in our age. And I'll give you one example. If I ask people to tell me what they think would be likely to happen, and if you looked at the boy births versus girl births per day in two hospitals in a given town, one with about 15 births per day and one with about 45 births per day, and then you ask on at which of these two hospitals do you think there would be more days in the year when 60% or more of the babies born were boys? Now, half the people will tell you it makes no difference. And of the remainder, about half will say it would be the larger hospital that would have more such days. And about half say it would be the smaller hospital. In actual fact, if you think about 15, well, that's 60%. That would be eight boys versus seven girls. I mean, nine boys versus six girls. That that doesn't sound, you know, like that's the kind of thing that could happen, you know, frequently. I mean, if you had one more girl birth instead of boy, then that'd be eight, seven, and you can't do any better than that in coming close to 50-50, which we assume is the population value for percent of boys born. With 45, however, it's really very unlikely. You're now looking at 60% difference, which you would see only three or four times a year. I mean, it's because the larger your sample, the closer you come to the population value. If you have a very small sample, you can be way off. I mean, suppose there were three births. I mean, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going to automatically be hugely off the population value. As long as you're sampling randomly, which basically is the way to think about births, the more the cases you have, the more it's going to resemble the population value. So that's a useful kind of thing to know for that kind of numerical example. And there's lots that happens in the world that you'll think about differently if you know it. But I apply the law of large numbers to the following kind of problem. I say to people, I have a friend who's an executive, and he told me that the other day he interviewed someone who had great recommendations from his previous companies, and he had a great record of performance. But in the interview, the guy seemed kind of lackluster. He 
didn't have any very trenchant things to say about my friend's business. So he decided not to pursue the guy any further. If I say this, people say, well, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> What's interesting about that happens all the time. Well, it does happen all the time, but it's a huge mistake because it turns out that the interview correlates with subsequent performance in college, in graduate school, in medical school, in officer training school, in every business or profession that it's ever been examined to the tune of 0.1. That's, that's extremely low correlation. It's enough to take you from picking the better of two candidates from 50-50, a coin toss, up to about 53%. It's a trivial gain. And what's horrendous about that is that typically the folder has a huge amount of information, a grade point average, previous performance, letters from people who've known the person for hundreds or thousands of hours. It's a huge amount of evidence that's coming much closer to the population value on average than you would ever get for, for an interview. So it's a mistake, actually, to interview at all, because the gain if you could confine the judgment about the person, whether to hire the person or not, if you could confine the interview to its appropriate pace, which is essentially no more than a tiebreaker. But we're not capable of doing that. I'm not capable of doing that. When I interview people, I have this same illusion, you know, that I'm really, you know, I've really learned a lot about this person's intellect and personality, and it's baloney. I haven't. But to make matters even worse for the interview, it isn't even a sample of the population you're after. It isn't a sample of job performance or school performance. It's a sample of interview performance. And those are not at all the same thing, we know empirically. Some people, inter extroverts are great at interviews. Introverts are not so good. But you typically are hiring for other skills other than a personality trait. So that would be a typical kind of way that I teach in the book. I mean, here's the principle stated in some highly informal way. And here are some concrete examples and I know that you know, this. I know for many of the things that are taught in the course, I know that this kind of, of instruction is powerful and impacts the way people think. There are things in the book where I don't know that, but I have pretty good idea that the principles are sufficiently similar psychologically that everything in the book I do believe can have a big impact on the way people think. And the kind of thing that's necessary for the information age. I mean, 300 years ago, we didn't have you know, the kind of information. We didn't have the folder that we do now. But people need to be able to collect information, analyze information, analyze arguments based on information, persuade other people based on information, know how to generate reliable information from assessment or from interventions of various kinds. So you're not information age smart if you don't know the kinds of things that I'm talking about. You know, one of my favorite <laughs> examples of kind of misunderstanding sample size, I think an example that Kahneman uses talking about, I believe it's kidney cancer rates. And, you know, he kind of starts out with this vignette about how rural counties have the lowest instances of kidney cancer rates. And then he asks people to explain, okay, why is that the case? And, and you know, they, they think to themselves, oh, you know, maybe it's the fresh air. There's not as much pollution. You know, they're spending more time outside, et cetera. And then he goes, okay, also rural counties have the highest rates of kidney cancer, right? Like different rural counties. So the highest and lowest rates are both in rural counties. And then people, you know, figure out, they try to, they make all these explanations the same way. When in reality, both instances are just statistical artifacts from the fact that they're just small sample sizes. And so they have bigger outliers in terms of the results for cancer rates. 
That's a great example. That, that one was new to me. I had not known about it before I read Danny's book. But let me give you another example of something like that. I mean, if you ask people, you tell them a fact. As you may or may not know, the rookie of the year in baseball, uh, that is the best player, is rarely the best player the next year. This is sometimes called the sophomore jinx. How would you explain this phenomenon? For people who never had statistics, they will always go the causal route, <laughs> the deterministic route. They say, well, you know, maybe the pitchers make the necessary adjustments, or maybe the guy gets too cocky and he slacks off. But actually, the principle of statistical regression tells us that it's almost inevitable that the person who's best in a given year is not going to be best in the, in the next year. I mean, think about how did that person get to be the best baseball player? Well, the first year. Well, certainly by having virtue of having a, a lot of talent, much more talent than the average person. But everything else went right, too. He got just the right coaching. The first three or four games he played, he did extremely well, built his confidence. He got engaged to the girl of his dreams. The next year, you know, the great dice thrower in the sky gave him an elbow injury. So he was out for quite a while. And I'm sorry to say, his girlfriend, his fiance, jolted him. So the point being that around any observation that we make, we're looking at something that's been generated by what a measurement theorist would say is true score. That's, you know, God's own understanding of what the facts of the matter are, plus error. And there's always error for absolutely everything. Now, for some things, it's vanishingly small, but there is always error associated with every observation. And that kind of error is you roll the dice again for this good baseball player, and you're not, you're probably not going to get all aces. Everything's not going to come up so great for this guy because a lot of performances that you're observing is error. Another example would be I, I tell people, you know, I have a friend, she's a foodie, but she's discovered that when she goes back to a restaurant where she's had a really excellent meal, subsequent meals are rarely as good. Why is that? And people will give you nothing but <laughs> deterministic answers for that. They'll say, oh, well, you know, maybe the chefs change a lot or maybe her expectations got up so high that, that nothing could satisfy them. But this is, an, again, another case of regression. I mean, extreme values are relatively rare. If you think of the bell curve, things that are way out there on the bell curve, there are not that many of them out there. So another way to think about it, to massage people's intuitions about why you expect to not get such a great meal at a restaurant where you've had a superb one before. Think about this. Are there, do you think there are more restaurants in the world where you would get an excellent meal every time or more restaurants where you would get an excellent meal only some of the time? Most people's intuition there is it's the second type. There are probably more restaurants where you would get an excellent meal just some of the time. Well, if that's the case, it has to be the case that if she has an excellent meal the first time, it's not likely to be an excellent meal the next time because she's probably sampled one of those restaurants where you can only get an excellent meal some of the time. So the regression principle is crucial for understanding all kinds of things around us all the time. Extreme scores are rare. Expect extreme scores to regress to the mean. Think of the mean as I know, some kind of magnet dragging events from extreme and rare circumstances back to some central tendency, which is less extreme. And on the subject of regression to the mean, one of my favorite 
kind of mental models for understanding that is from a book called The Success Equation by Michael Mobison. And he talks about envisioning that you have sort of two jars, one called luck and one called skill, which I think you would essentially call sort of true score and error. And any outcome, right, you draw from the skill jar, which is roughly a fixed quantity. And then, you know, you draw from the luck jar, which which is a random number essentially, and you add them together and that's the result that you get. And so any great streak is always a combination of essentially sort of tremendous skill with tremendous luck stacked on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. Great way of putting it. So I'd love to, uh, actually, before we do this, for listeners to, to kind of help them just understand this concept a little bit better, when you talk about sort of deterministic thinking or deterministic answers, can you kind of explain that concept and why it's not always the appropriate way to think about things? It's never wrong to model some situation, think what's going on causally with it. Uh, but it's people who give causal answers for problems like the restaurant problem or the rookie of the year problem, they won't give a cause they won't go down the causal analysis route if they're familiar with statistics. For example, a single statistics course is enough to get people to say for the rookie of the year problem, well, you know, maybe, you know, there was sort of by chance that he did so well, you know, and that's right as far as it goes, that people who've had two or three statistics courses will say, well, look, that's an extreme score. Extreme scores are rare. There's going to be regression back to the mean. So, And they just never go down the causal route. But if you don't have the concept of statistical regression, what are you going to do? <laughs> you don't have anything else other than causal notions to draw on. A lot of statistical principles are, are ways of thinking about the world that don't get you involved in, in the effortful business of of causal analysis at all, because you realize, look, this, is, this thing has to be true statistically. I mean, end of, end of story. Not that there aren't, of course, there are causal things going on, but you, you wouldn't be thinking about those things if you were aware of the regression principle. One of the other statistical concepts that you talk about that, that I'm a big fan of, and I think is underutilized for explaining and understanding reality are base rates. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts about that and maybe explain that in a way that listeners can really simply grasp it. Right. Well, we often think about events using only the individuating information about that event rather than thinking about the event as a type of event for which we may have base rate information that would tell us how to think about that particular case. That's not a very clear way of putting it. So let me give a concrete example of the importance of using base rate and the kinds of things that can operate as, as base rate should be thought of in that way. If I ask undergraduates, again, who've had no statistics, I, I tell them, I want to tell you about somebody. His name is David L. He's a high school senior. He's going to college next year to one of two colleges which are close to his home. One is a state university where he has lots of friends, and those friends like that school very much on both intellectual grounds and personal grounds. The other one is a private college where he also has several friends, and uh, they're not really crazy about it. I mean, they don't think they're getting such a great education there, and they don't have that many friends. But David L. goes to visit each of those schools for a day, and he he just doesn't have a good feeling about that state university place. I mean, a couple of professors he wanted to talk to would give him the brush off. Some students that he meets just don't seem to be very interesting. But at that private college, a couple of professors actually take a personal interest in him, and he meets some sort of vital, really interesting kids at the other 
place. So which place do you think David L. should go to? You will never find an unwashed freshman who will tell you anything other than, oh, he's got to go where his heart tells him to go. He's not choosing for his friends. He's choosing for himself. But there's two things wrong with that. One is sample size. I mean, that's just, I mean, think about it. I mean, you go to a place for a day. I mean, that's a small sample. I mean, you just by luck of the draw, you get a professor who is rushed and doesn't have time to talk to you or isn't very interested in you. And then by luck of the draw, someplace else, you get a professor who is more willing to, or there's a lot of randomness to any information you're going to get in such a small sample. So you understand the law of large numbers, you're not going to make that judgment for David L. The other thing that's important is understand the base rate, because you can think of his friends' views of these places, his friends' experiences, as providing a base rate for the experiences to be expected at each of these schools. And again, the law of large numbers plays into understanding why you ought to be paying deep attention to that base rate. They've got hundreds or thousands of hours collectively experience at these places. And you're, you know, so you should use that base rate to decide what to do. You know, people will say is resistance to that. They'll say, well, you know, you're you're asking me to, to do what other people are doing. But, you know, I have my own unique preferences and skills and so on, and I I don't know that I should just slavishly follow what other people are doing. Well, the social psychologist Dan Gilbert has a great expression. He says, if you're like most people, then like most people, you think you're not like most people, (laughs) but you are. (laughs) The base rates for human beings apply to you for most things. You know, I give an example. I just saw the musical Hamilton. I have yet to hear of anybody who didn't absolutely love that musical. I say, so I feel with great confidence, you're going to like that musical, whoever the heck you are. Say, well, I don't like musicals. I don't tell me that. I don't care whether you like musicals or not. I don't particularly like musicals. And I loved it. They say, well, you know, it's hip hop music. I'm not crazy about hip hop music. Well, I'm certainly not crazy about hip hop music, but I love that thing. So you just, you, you have to pay attention to other people's experiences, other people's views as generating a, a base rate to be expected of your own experience. And don't try to collect little pieces of information like who's starring in the movie to individuating information about this particular case. Think about what the base rate of opinion is of other people about that thing. So essentially, you know, many people get caught up in the trap of thinking only about their own unique situation and trying to gather as much data as they can. When oftentimes, if you would just sort of zoom out and look at out of everyone who's ever been in this situation, what were the sort of predominant outcomes and at what frequency, you can often make a much better decision. Yeah, very well put. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And as an aside, Hamilton is awesome. I haven't seen it, but I do love the soundtrack. Anyway, changing gears, I'd love to to dig into some of the, you know, we've talked a lot about many of the statistical concepts that you lay out in the book and can help people make better decisions. I'd love to dig into some of the other ideas kind of from the scientific method or, you know, how we can apply scientific thinking to be better decision makers. Great. So you'd like to me to just give examples of how we can make use of experimental method? Exactly. Well, first of all, let me say that where it's most important is public policy matters. On 9-11, 9,000 grief counselors descended on Manhattan to work with people. And they did what seems very reasonable to me. They met with people in small groups. They asked people to tell about their experiences, about their emotional reactions. And then they would assure people that their reactions are very common. There's nothing you know, strange or unusual about them. And in the not too distant future, they're going to be a lot better off. Sounds like a great idea, except that it isn't. It actually makes people worse. <laughs> and there are things that social psychologists have discovered to do for grieving people that make them better. 
So here's this massive investment that society has put into something that is, is not doing any good. It's costly and it's doing some harm. Another example would be, oh, 20 years or so ago, a bunch of prisoners in New Jersey decided that maybe they could scare kids off from doing things that would put them in prison. So they brought junior high kids to prison and they told them how horrible it is. The food's terrible. It's incredibly boring. You get beat up all the time, sexual attacks and so on. Again, that sounds like a great idea to me. You have a kid who's you know, at risk uh, for delinquency. I mean, that might make him think twice about it. But in fact, it actually makes kids more likely to become delinquents. Now, don't ask me why. I don't have an explanation. I don't have to have an explanation. I just know what the data are. It's now, studies have been done, good experimental studies, expose some kids to the what's called scared straight programs, don't expose others. And it, on average, it seems to increase the likelihood of delinquency by about 13%. And one estimate, looking at a meta-analysis of a number of studies that's done, comes out with the conclusion that for every dollar spent on scared straight, you incur $400 of cost in terms of crimes committed and paying for incarceration. Well, let's take something really big. We've had with us now for about 50 years the Head Start program. We've spent $200 billion on that to this point. And we don't know whether it does any good or not. We would know a few million dollars would have told us what kinds of early childhood programs are effective if society were in a more experimenting mood. We do know that some, some forms of childcare are effective. They tend to be more ambitious and better carried out than most Head Start situations are. But it's just people assume that, oh, okay, it's got to be a good idea. You take a bunch of kids in, you show them some intellectual tasks, you get them to cooperate with each other. And probably some version of that's correct, but we have no idea how close to that ideal our typical Head Start experience comes. So at the societal level, we need vastly more experiments than we're getting. You know, people often, <laughs> all of these cases, it's just... They're obvious to people. They're obvious to me, too. <laughs> but I know as a social psychologist, you know, the, it's a great burden being a social psychologist because unlike everybody else, I'm constantly getting my opinions about human behavior <laughs> contradicted. I mean, I design an experiment. I never do an experiment unless I know what's going to happen. Why would I do an experiment, you know? If I didn't, didn't know what was going to happen or have a pretty good idea of what would occur, I'm not just looking at things randomly. I think, you know, this is the way the world is. If I do this, this is what will happen. And half the time I'm wrong. So social psychologists are constantly having their noses rubbed in the fact that their guesses about human behavior, the way we model human behavior is way off often. And the only substitute for that is to just do the experiment. And then at the individual level, there are all kinds of opportunities for experiments that would be informative. Am I better off if I have coffee in the morning or not? Does coffee make me more efficient or does it make me more jittery and unpleasant? And the only way I'm going to know the answer to that question is by doing a randomized control experiment. You come down in the morning and you flip a coin to decide whether I'm going to have coffee or not. Otherwise, you're drinking coffee in a haphazard way. You know, I'm drinking it this morning because my husband made it for me, or I, you know, I didn't have it this morning because I was in a rush. So there's a huge amount of noise that you're exposing yourself to, and you can get pure signal if you just do the randomized experiment. 
Same thing for yoga. Are you better off with yoga or not? Meditation or not? Flip the coin and meditate today or not, or meditate for a month and then a month not, or yoga for six months and yoga for six months not, and see what the empirical questions are. Social psychologists have an expression that they're using, that they use to each other all the time. And I think it should be an expression that's at everybody's disposal much more than it is. And that's, it's an empirical question. I mean, instead of, you know, I would tell you my model of the world and you tell me your model of the world and we're talking about it. And in the end, it's an empirical question. So <laughs> let's look it up. Or if we don't look it up, let's do the experiment. Or if we can't do the experiment, let's admit that there's dueling models is not necessarily the way to get you any closer to the truth. And when you have, when you can do an experiment easily, it's foolish to just assume that your plausible model allows you to have an opinion about some matter. I find it so interesting that, that our intuitions often can be terribly misleading. And in many cases, you know, people who haven't kind of studied psychology or statistics or any of these methodologies for more deeply understanding both how the world works and how the human mind works, uh, just sort of lean on intuition or lean on their sort of, you know, I feel like this is the case. So that, that seems, you know, that seems like what's true. And, and oftentimes they can just be completely wrong. Right. My friend, the social psychologist, Lee Ross has a very important concept. Uh, I would say it's at the floor of anything I would want to say about information age reasoning. And that is that we have an illusion of objectivity. As I experience the world, I think I'm registering what's out there. And I'm not, not for anything, not even for the visual things. I mean, especially not for visual things. What's being recorded on my retina is not what I am using, that's not the information I'm using to make a judgment about, for example, distance or depth perception or estimations of size. And it's easy to show. I mean, perceptual psychologists make a living by showing how easy it is to create illusions and make us make a wrong judgment about some illustration or some physical setup in the world. And these that's because our perceptual apparatus is not set up to to render what the world is in some actual sense. It's set up to be what's useful so that we distort the visual processing centers, wildly distort the picture of some object in the service of size constancy. That is, we add a dose of perceptual analysis that will allow us to see an object that's receding into the distance as being the same size object, even though the way it strikes our retina is very, very different from what's correct. So our perceptual apparatus is, is, is a very complicated, layered set of mental operations that are designed to give us some correct view of the world. But those same processes can create illusions in some circumstances. So cognitive psychologists' tools that we use to understand reality are things like schemas, that is, representations of common situations, stereotypes, heuristics, uh, rules of thumb for reasoning, and so on. All of, the, all of these things are these highly 
error-prone structures and processes are what we're using to understand the world. We're not registering it. We're interpreting it. And we're interpreting it, moreover, by structures and processes that we have no awareness of. So I think that's helpful in all kinds of ways to recognize that we do have an illusion of objectivity or what the philosophers called naive realism. So if you understand that, it's useful for humility. I probably shouldn't be nearly as sure of my understanding of the world as I am most of the time because I'm using processes which which can lead me astray often. Changing gears a little bit, I'd love to talk about fundamental attribution error and some of the work you've done about how situations versus sort of personalities can impact people's behavior. Right. Well, the, there's a story that goes back to 1968 for the publication of a book by Walter Michel. He's the marshmallow guy that everybody knows about. And he said, the book was about the power of assessment of personality traits to predict behavior. And his generalization was that if you're trying to predict behavior in one situation by virtue of knowing about behavior in some other situation, which could be described by the same trait, your correlation is going to run about 0.1. That is, it's, it's trivial gain in accuracy of knowing how honest someone is going to be or how conscientious they're going to be or how extroverted they're going to be. You can do better than that if you have a very good personality instrument, questionnaire or reputation. Base rate, in other words, comes from knowing a lot about many past experiences and applying that base rate to this particular circumstance that you're looking at, those correlations can go as high as about 0.3. Still not too impressive. Doesn't mean that people don't have personalities or that personalities don't affect their behavior. They do, but you have to have a heck of a lot of information and you predicting a heck of a lot of information. It takes lots and lots of observations to predict a battery of other observations. There you can get up to predictability of 0.8, 0.85. But now why is that? Why is it that the predictability from one situation to another is so poor? Well, it has to do with error of various kinds. I mean, you're looking at a set, why did I give, why did Joe give money to the United Fund? I say, well, he's a generous guy. Well, actually, his department chairman was going to know whether he gave money to the United Fund or not, so he gave it. And why, why did Bill not give money? Well, because he happens to be that he has a, an opinion about one particular program by the United Fund that he's very much opposed to, not that he's ungenerous or uncharitable. So situations are normally producing are normally responsible for behavior to a much greater extent than we recognize. And personality traits or other dispositions like skills or attitudes or needs are often contributing very little. I mean, it's this, the situation is driving the bus. I mean, most behavior most of the time. So this was a bombshell, actually. I mean, because he said he was able to show that nobody's clinical assessments or personality traits assessments were very accurate in predicting behavior. And some things, and this wasn't his original contribution, but it all went into his book, some things that clinicians thought were predictive were absolutely useless. I mean, the draw a person test predicts nothing. You know, people, if you clinicians were thinking to themselves, well, if the person draws a person 
with funny eyes, you know, that guy could be paranoid, or, you know, draws somebody with a big head, well, they may have worries about his intelligence, or somebody draws a person with sexual organs, and that person, you know, there's maybe some sexual adjustment issue, all, all of which undergraduates who have no clinical training at all will see in data, even though it's not there. You built the data set so that none of these things are true, but that's what they'll see. You say, well, oh, funny eyes, paranoia, I see. We're just not that good at covariation detection. Actually, we're shockingly bad at most kinds of covariation detection, which is strange given how very good we are at pattern detection. I mean, if there's a pattern out there in the world, we can't not see it. But if there's a correlation of a given kind, most of the kinds of things, important things even, that we really would like to have a, an accurate idea of, it's just very hard to understand. They're primarily determined by what the clinical psychologist actually, Seligman, can't recall his name, first name offhand, showed, we called it preparedness. We're prepared to see some kinds of association and we're counter-prepared for others. So we're prepared to see these associations. Same thing is true for the Rorschach test. Rorschach was given to hundreds of thousands of people, costing untold millions of dollars to do these assessments. You know, what is it that people see in these ink blots and what does that predict? And no one for decades ever bothered to do the experiment here or to do the systematic observation and say, well, how, how well do, do these Rorschach signs, how well do they do in predicting behavior? And it turns out the Rorschach is virtually useless. There's one or two little things that it can predict, but it's virtually useless. So we see a behavior in one situation and we sort of take it for granted. We've learned some, something about a person's personality traits. And it's easy to show, and there are dozens of demonstrations and experiments showing that we are way overconfident in our judgment about personality from judging, from looking at just a one or two or three situations in which we've observed behavior. There's a law of large numbers issue here, too. I mean, it's just, you know, one behavior is not a very large sample, but we don't realize that. There are a few arenas where we're aware of the uncertainty of any observation. Interestingly, sports is an exception to that. People are really well calibrated on how much you can predict, let's say, a basketball score at a particular game from basketball scores at another game for how well you can predict spelling test performance by elementary school kids by virtue of knowing another spelling test performance. For the abilities we've looked at, they tend to run about 0.5. I mean, from a, you know, a serious good observation, one game, or one test, uh, they tend to run about 0.5. So they're informative, but they're certainly not the whole story, which people with any knowledge of sports understand perfectly well. It's captured beautifully by the idea that on any given Sunday, any team in the NFL can defeat any other team in the NFL. That's how much of a luck error, that's how much of a role it plays in any given sports outcome. Despite the fact that people are quite good at understanding both how well you can predict an event from another event or a set of events from another large set of events, that doesn't pour over at all into our understanding of personality trait related behavior. I mean, you can show that people are horrendously miscalibrated about how much information they think they've gotten from observing a person in one particular situation.
So obviously we've talked about the book and for people who want to dig into and really understand a lot of these kind of mental models or, or frameworks much more deeply, that's a great place to start. What would some other resources be that you would recommend listeners check out if they want to kind of dig into some of these topics? Well, I think Silver's The Signal and the Noise. It's about statistical concepts. It's, it's a beautiful information age book. I mean, it tells you how you need to think about things, information that you haven't collected yourself that somebody else has collected how to make use of it, how to avoid making errors and determining it. There's another lovely book by a mathematician called How Not to Be Wrong. And incidentally, he deals with the law of large numbers at length in his book, just like I do in my book. And it's very, it's very similar. I mean, it's, I, I was kind of surprised that, that a mathematician would be thinking about so many everyday life situations in terms of the law of large numbers and have so many beautiful concrete examples of how we have to think, given that all of our observations have errors surrounding them. Surprised because I don't see statisticians doing that sort of thing. Somebody who really, really wants to get serious about inferential roles in a very systematic way, formal definitions, I would recommend a book by Diane Halpern called Thought and Knowledge. And it just marches through. It's a similar to my book in a way, although she spends time on things that I don't spend much time on. She talks a fair amount about some logical principles and some syllogistic schemas where I, you know, I think that formal stuff is not actually something that people can make that much use of. But some people would like to know about it anyway, because there is some people who are in jobs which require sometimes some kinds of logical formulations. And it can be interesting. It can be, it can be fun to look at that stuff. Much of the territory she covers in that book, which is a critical thinking text, basically, that's what it's intended for. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So yeah, there's, there's plenty. And of course, there's Danny Kahneman's book, which is a near relative of my book. The title there, of course, is Thinking Fast and Slow. Yep. Great book. Huge fan of that book and Daniel Kahneman. So where can people find you and the book online, your book? Well, it's on Amazon, uh, and it's in various versions, print, Kindle, and Audible. Great. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. We really explained a lot of these concepts that can seem kind of daunting at first, but are really critical components to building a deep understanding of how the world works and how your mind works and how we can make better decisions. So thank you so much for being a guest on The Science of Success. We've really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's matt at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. It's called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it 
for free by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all the incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talked about in this episode, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Go to scienceofsuccess.co, hit the show notes button at the top. We're going to have everything that we talked about in this episode. There's a previous episode you loved. You can get the show notes for every episode that we've done. Just go to scienceofsuccess.co, hit the show notes button at the top, and you can find everything. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Science of Success.